Hi, welcome to the Revealed Apologetics podcast. My name is Eli Ayala, founder and host of Revealed Apologetics. If you've been blessed by the content of this podcast or the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel, please consider supporting us. You can support Revealed Apologetics by generously giving at revealedapologetics.com. Choose the donate button and give either through PayPal or Venmo. Or you can simply write a brief review of the podcast on iTunes. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you're interested in having me speak at your event, you can connect with me by filling out the contact info on the Revealed Apologetics website homepage or simply email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're interested in signing up for my online apologetics course, information on Presup University can also be found on the Revealed Apologetics website. Folks can sign up anytime and the course content will be sent to them. Once again, thank you so much for your support. I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and uh, today um, kind of doing something, well, not super different, but usually I have a guest on to talk about some uh, topic. Uh, today, I'm basically just going to be talking about myself. <laughs> so I hope, I hope so whoever's listening might find this uh, a little interesting, but uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to kind of unpack um some of my own theological um, positions with respect to uh, certain topics that might be of interest to some folks. Um, I do place great value in the fact that uh, one is able to survey uh, their own belief and beliefs and explain why they hold to certain positions. Um, and there is some educational value to that. And so um, as I uh, share my views uh, with respect to creation, uh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Uh, perhaps we'll talk a little bit about my eschatology, my my end times view. Uh, perhaps folks will find that uh, somewhat valuable um, as they are um, perhaps searching uh, for their own perspective on these topics. And so um, hopefully that will be useful to whoever uh, may be listening. Uh, you might also, uh, if you're used to listening to my show and my, my voice is somewhat familiar, uh, I am kind of sort of losing my voice. So <laughs> I'm partially questioning the wisdom of me even going live today. But um, I here's the thing. Okay. I love uh, I love theology. I love uh, apologetics. I'm the sort of guy that I, that on the one hand, uh, you might see me very tired and I don't want to really get into a conversation. But once uh, people start talking about the Bible or apologetics or theology, uh, I get kind of a, a renewed energy. So uh, hopefully I won't lose my voice completely uh, and um, I will uh, get energized through reflecting on some interesting theological topics that I've studied uh, in my own personal life. And uh, hopefully you'll find that useful. All right. So if I sound a little different, um, I do apologize. Um, just real quick, before we dive into some of the specifics uh, of, of some of my theological perspectives, I just want to give folks a heads up. Uh, I am still uh, good to go in terms of having Dr. Matthew Barrett on. Uh, if you don't know who Dr. Matthew Barrett is, uh, he is the author of Simply Trinity and, of course, the highly popular book, 
um, God's Word Alone. I believe that's what what, what it's called. And there's a, a whole series there in which uh, you have different authors defending some aspect, some pillar of Reformed theology. And so I'm very much looking forward uh, to having Dr. Barrett on. Sola Scriptura is uh, a very important uh, Reformed uh, foundation. And um, especially with my my study into Eastern Orthodoxy, and of course, whoever might be involved in the study of Roman Catholicism, the issue of, of sola scriptura and one's ability to defend the truth of that doctrine um, is vitally, vitally uh, important. So I'm very much looking forward to, to that discussion. Also, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser uh, is hopefully still coming on. I haven't been able to reach out to him yet. Um, I know he is undergoing some health issues and um, I'm kind of following uh, some of the updates that he's posting on, on Facebook. Um, I've just recently recovered from, uh, from COVID. So I haven't really been going a hundred percent in terms of, uh, you know, reaching out to folks and, and, and things like that. And so um, uh, I'll check into that and keep folks uh, posted with respect to that. Um, also, if you have any questions about anything, so, so this is kind of like, um, I'm not only surveying some of my perspectives, uh, theologically speaking, um, but if you have any questions for me uh, with respect to a position that I hold, or if you have uh, any apologetics question, all, all questions, all of that is fair game. Uh, feel free to leave a question in the uh, comments. Um, it is helpful and useful to me when you preface your question with the word question or uh, the letter um, uh, Q <laughs> so that I could differentiate, uh, questions and comments. Okay. Um, so, uh, without further ado, uh, let's, um, let's get into this. Well, first I want to, uh, make a disclaimer. Um, I am a theologian only in the popular sense. I, I do not have a PhD in theology. Um, I grew up in the church and so, um, theology has very much been a part of my life. Um, whether I'm arguing some element of theology with family members or uh, later on in life, uh, engaging in apologetics and teaching uh, theology uh, to middle school and high school students, um, I am not a scholar by any means. Um, I've gone to seminary, but uh, I, I don't uh, read uh, Koine Greek. I, I can read it very little. Um, so everything that I'm going uh, on is based upon really my own personal uh, studies uh, and personal reflections. Um, this actually is something that should actually be very encouraging uh, to folks. Uh, for example, let's take a look at uh, some of my apologetics. Now, a lot of people know that's that's a central focus of, of my ministry. My YouTube channel, of course, is called Revealed Apologetics. Um, this is something that's very encouraging to folks, okay? I went to seminary. I'm a graduate of Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. I earned two masters uh, in uh, theological studies. So I have a master of arts in theological studies and a master of divinity with a theological focus. Now, here's the thing. 99% of the theology that I learned uh, actually was not from my seminary training, but rather through my personal study. Okay. And uh, the value of knowing that is that you do not need to go to seminary in order to really dig deep into theological studies. It definitely helps, uh, but it can be done uh, without it. Um, if you have a good focus and discipline, um, you're going to a solid church where uh, good doctrine is promoted. These sorts of things are, are sufficient as well to really equip uh, the average believer. So I want to encourage folks, um, you don't need to have a PhD next to your name in order to do uh, theology and or even do theology well. Uh, hopefully, uh, I'm a person who perhaps you think I, I do a, a theology and apologetics well. Uh, 
uh, I greatly appreciate that if you think that about me. But uh, there have been some major ideas uh, that I have struggled with, um, especially with regards to uh, the doctrine of creation, uh, with the whole uh, old Earth, young Earth debate. And so I'm kind of, I'm kind of gonna, <sighs> I'm gonna put my flag somewhere on this show and tell you a little bit where I, uh, where I stand with respect to the doctrine of creation. And we're going to kind of follow kind of general um, theological and biblical themes. So for example, um, you take a look at the scriptures, uh, the scriptures um, are comprised of 66 books, 39 books in the old Testament, 27 books in the new Testament's written over a period of uh, 1500 years uh, written in, on three different continents and three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic uh, Bible's a pretty big book. Okay. Um, and it's, it can be very intimidating, uh, especially when you have one of those giant study Bibles. It looks like you're kind of studying and reading from an encyclopedia. Uh, but what I have found uh, is that the entire Bible can be summarized in just a few major themes of which all of the stories, all of the teachings and doctrines really uh, in the scriptures kind of reflect these broad basic themes that you find throughout scripture. And those themes are uh, creation, uh, redemption, I'm sorry, creation, the fall, redemption, uh, and consummation, okay? And so you have from creation all the way up to consummation, uh, which really typifies, um, if you take a look in terms of just uh, history, um, it really typifies uh, what we would understand as a what we call a linear model of history. And this is very important, okay? History itself, okay, along with everything else that we believe, um, is always interpreted within a worldview perspective. And so I see history, this is kind of my theology of history. I see history as linear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, okay? And so my belief in creation is connected to my belief that everything within history has a specific purpose. History itself is unfolding God's plans, God's purposes, especially with respect to uh, his unfolding of his redemptive plan throughout history. And so I believe, uh, especially coming from a uh, reformed perspective, I believe that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. And that is what gives the events of history uh, meaning and significance. Okay. So um, beginning with, with some of my theological beliefs, I have a theological perspective of history. And so I follow uh, what we call a linear uh, model, which is actually very different. I'm not sure folks are familiar with this, but when you study um, history, what undergirds history and what undergirds all of the, the disciplines, whether you're studying uh, philosophy, um, mathematics, science, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, there is always, as you should be familiar with if you listen to this show, there are always undergirding worldview um, foundations, okay? Um, there's not just history, there is a philosophy of history. And the philosophy of history is not just a bare philosophy, a general perspective. It comes from a specific worldview perspective. And so you could have a very Christian understanding of history and you could have a very, um, let's say, an Eastern perspective of history, which follows a more uh, cyclical model of history. Uh, so from the Christian perspective, as I perceive it, history proceeds in linear fashion, creation, and then everything that unfolds from there is actually moving towards a specific end. Now, that being said, and this is important if you're a Christian who believes in uh, the decrees of God, that whatever happens in time uh, and space is is something that unfolds 
um, uh, God's uh, plans and purposes, okay? That is not to say, especially coming from a reformed perspective, when I say that, for example, I do not believe in luck, chance, and randomness, um, that is not to say that um, just because there is a reason and purpose for everything that happens, that we necessarily know what those reasons are. Okay. Uh, so for example, when you take a look at the philosophical problem of evil, um, and Christians grapple with the notion, um, of the existence of objective evil and the existence of the sword of God that is presented in scripture. Um, I do believe that God has morally sufficient reasons for the evil that he allows, but that doesn't mean I know specifically in every instance and manifestation of evil that I know what that specific purpose is. There is elements of mystery within that perspective. And of course, there is a theology of mystery, uh, which I firmly hold to. I do not pretend uh, to be able to explain um, every single detail of why God does what he does. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children's children. And so um, I think theologically, um, and this is something I hold uh, very uh, strongly, uh, there is room for mystery, an appropriate room for mystery. And um, it is not always, um, it can be sometimes, but it's not always uh, a cop-out to appeal to uh, mystery. Um, so for example, if you uh, know some of the, the interviews that I've done with respect to um, uh, Calvinism, uh, theological determinism, uh, engaging the question um, of how one is to reconcile the notion that God is meticulously sovereign, yet man is sufficiently free and morally responsible for his actions. Um, we have theological and philosophical explanations as to how we think those things work out. But I do believe regardless if there are, um, you know, vitriolic uh, insults that are hurled uh, in, in the direction of Reformed theology for this, I do believe that in some cases it is very appropriate to affirm that how these elements are reconciled is in fact quite mysterious. And so that when we are engaging in philosophical and theological explanation as to how, for example, one reconciles the notion of divine sovereignty and human freedom and responsibility, uh, we are engaging in speculation, okay? That does not mean that it's inappropriate. There is appropriate speculation. Um, but we are speculating because um, I'm very much in line with John Calvin, who held to the principle that when the scripture is silent, we should be also. Uh, again, so I, I don't mind talking about, uh, you know, having someone like Guillaume Bignon on or some other uh, reformed uh, philosopher to talk about how we explain some of these elements and how these things work together. Uh, ultimately, I have no problem uh, saying uh, I really don't know for sure how all of these things work out. Um, and I have no, I have no, no problem with that. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine, uh, you guys might be familiar with him. He is a, a, a well-known Molinist. Okay. Uh, if, if anyone is familiar with Molinism, uh, which is a particular view of divine sovereignty, which, uh, places a great emphasis on, on what's called middle knowledge. I have a friend, his name is Tim Stratton. Uh, he, he told me once, he said, um, if I wasn't a Calvinist, uh, I'm sorry, if I wasn't a Molinist, um, I would be a Mysterian Calvinist. Okay. Uh, and for Tim, uh, uh, or Dr. Stratton, we'll give a, we'll, we'll recognize his uh, credentials there. Uh, Dr. Stratton, um, um, defines Mysterian Calvinism as the sort of Calvinism that says, sure, God is meticulously sovereign. Man is sufficiently free and morally responsible, but 
it's a mystery. I'm not sure how it works out. I'm okay with that. Okay. So um, I'm a Calvinist. I tend to lean towards a form of theological determinism. And uh, I believe it um, not only because I find the philosophical argumentation cogent and sufficient to my intellectual satisfaction, um, and that determinism survives uh, many of the critiques that are launched at it by um, folks who hold to a more libertarian perspective. Um, but most importantly, um, because I have a very high view of scripture, I believe that uh, reformed theology uh, and a particular form of determinism is something that is reflected in uh, the biblical text. I know some people will hear that and they'll say, that's ridiculous. You know, they'll say, when I read the scriptures, I don't see anything in scripture that even remotely looks like a form of determinism. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. Even if Calvinism was wrong, I would admit that there are elements of scripture that seem very deterministic. And so the debate and the discussion um, is not as simple as waving your hand and pretending that um, Calvinists have nothing valuable to bring to the table. In like fashion, I do believe as, uh, as a student of scripture uh, that in favor of the Arminian perspective or someone who holds to the uh, a view of free will, which leans more towards the libertarian perspective, while I do not hold to those perspectives, while I do not believe believe they are necessarily reflected in scripture, I totally and completely understand why someone can read portions of scripture and come away with that perspective. And so I hold to a particular view. I am Calvinistic in terms of my view of uh, divine providence, but I respect different perspectives and I see why some people hold the positions they hold. Ultimately, at the end of the day, my theological convictions are that those non-reformed perspectives, libertarian perspectives, are ultimately not the correct uh, view, okay? And that is uh, the position that I hold. Uh, some of you who might not be familiar uh, with uh, some past episodes and the certain things that I've studied before, I actually used to be a Molinist. Uh, and... Um, I remember uh, the book. I remember the book that actually uh, converted me to Molinism into a, a, an adoption of libertarian free will and things like that. It was a, it was a book by uh, Kenneth Keithley, who is a, a professor over at Southeastern Theological Seminary. He wrote a book called Salvation and Sovereignty. And uh, that book, when I read it, um, convinced me of Molinism. Until I started applying Molinism to other areas, which I thought were very important, especially with uh, soteriology and things like that. Um, and um, I became unconvinced uh, in its application in those areas. And for other reasons as well, I kind of uh, went back to my reformed uh, perspective. Um, and so I am uh, a, a Calvinist. I do not hold to libertarian free will. And no, I'm not convinced by uh, the accusation. Well, you were determined to say that. I think uh, those are very simplistic uh, responses. And, and uh, the debate on that topic, I think, goes much, much deeper. All right. So that's my perspective with respect to uh, a theology of time. Okay. I believe time proceeds in linear fashion. It is an unfolding of God's uh, redemptive uh, and decretive purposes. Okay. With respect to my view of um, uh, divine providence and things like that, I lean within a reformed and Calvinistic tradition. There's some variation even within that, but I tend to hold to a form of theological determinism. If you need a point of reference and say, well, wait, what do you mean theological determinism? Um, if you read, uh, you know, uh, someone like uh, Guillaume Bignon, who's a, a good friend of mine, he's a French philosopher, I tend to lean towards his position uh, with respect to that uh, topic. Okay. All right. Well, 
Again, just to remind folks, if you have any theological questions or biblical questions, feel free to put them in the comments. Um, it does not necessarily have to be related to a view that I am uh, sharing here, um, but um, you know, ask away. All right. Okay. So uh, my next question, uh, my next topic, uh, which people have seen me go back and forth on, if you know, and I highly recommend, and I know folks who have seen the discussions uh, on this topic would highly recommend on my channel um, are the discussions I had with uh, Dr. Jason Lyle, who is a young earth creationist and he is a PhD astrophysicist. And I had him in dialogue with Dr. Hugh Ross, who is also and a PhD astrophysicist and an old earth uh, creationist. And I moderated a discussion um, between the two. And in my opinion, um, I, I suppose I'm biased, right? As I often say, there is no neutrality, right? Um, I'm biased. Uh, you know, um, I think that that was one of the, the best conversations on that topic that I've ever listened to. And Dr. Lyle and Dr. Ross have had interactions in the past, but I actually think the discussion they had on my show uh, was was the best uh, discussion that, that I, I had the pleasure of listening to uh, between them. So I highly recommend you listen to that. But where do I stand? Okay. Where would I stand with respect to uh, this debate over uh, the days of creation? Now, now, here's the thing you need to understand that studies in interpretation of the book of Genesis is a very, very complicated field, okay? It's not as simple as just reading Genesis 1 and 2 and saying, oh, it's this is clearly what they're saying, okay? Uh, there is a very important consideration of historical context, identification of the literary genre of various portions uh, of Genesis, and you have people from different perspectives arguing, well, clearly it's this, or clearly it's that. Listen, I'm a presuppositionalist in my perspective. I trust in the authority of God's word. I understand the importance, not of just looking at data and evidence in favor of a view. I am very sensitive to the fact that our presuppositions affect how we interpret the data. Okay. And this, when you study uh, the creation account in Genesis and throughout scripture, um, there is a strong interplay between um, literary interpretation and um, uh, scientific um, findings, things like that. You get into questions of Big Bang cosmology and um, evidence for or against an uh, young earth or old earth uh, perspectives. I am not ashamed, okay, of the fact that the Bible may be teaching that God created everything in six 24-hour periods and that the earth, that the universe is, you know, somewhere between six to 10,000 years old. That's not the issue. My issue is not I'm afraid to sway in one position. My issue is that Genesis is uh, a very nuanced book. There is um, uh, different ways one can identify theological and literary genre um, um, playing within those accounts. And so it is not an easy um, decision for me, okay? Now you might read Genesis and be like, oh, it's clear. For me, with some of the things I know uh, with respect to what goes into studying ancient literature and genre and things like that, it has not been an easy study and an easy um, situation in which I can just put a flag down and be like, this is where, where I hope. However, okay, I told you at the beginning of this video, I'm going to put my flag somewhere, okay? Now, now here's the thing. I personally do not hold to, say, uh, a 
literary framework perspective. Um, I I am not attracted to over uh, meta. Uh, I don't know if it's a real word, but uh, let me rephrase myself. I'm not overly uh, attracted to positions that um, look at a lot of metaphor in Genesis, okay? I am attracted to a more literal interpretation of what I'm reading, okay? Now, literal is a sticky word. Uh, you will often hear people say, well, um, uh, you know, do you interpret the Bible literally? Well, yes, but it depends what you mean by literal, okay? Uh, this is actually an important uh, uh, point to, to, to kind of point out. To interpret the Bible literally is to interpret the Bible according to its literature and identifying the literature of portions of the Bible that you're reading is not always, pardon, is not always an easy thing to do. Now, all of that sidestepping and ambiguity aside, okay, if you put a gun to my head and you said, Eli, you need to choose right now, do you understand the creation account to be literally 24-hour days or long periods of time or other perspectives out there? I would have to say that if you if you put a gun to my head and force me to, to, to put my flag somewhere, I would be more sympathetic to a young earth interpretation. Okay. Uh, now I, I say this with flexibility in the sense that if you happen to hold, for example, to a day age perspective, uh, in terms of which the, the creation days are not literal 24 hour days, but rather long periods of time, I'm of the position where I can look at the text and say, okay, I see where you're coming from. And I kind of see how that might make sense. Okay, so I do not see the old earth creation perspective, an example, the day age interpretation or something like that. I do not see those perspectives as a um, a compromised perspective. You will often hear this language, right? Um, oh, well, those, you know, deep time proponents are compromisers, right? They are adopting secular perspective. I don't hold to that. I don't use that sort of language in describing the other uh, position. Um, and uh, you might have strong convictions uh, to the you know to the contrary. I I just think that the the topic is more nuanced and requires a little bit more flexibility. So ready? I am okay. A flexible young Earth creationist who is open to old Earth interpretations. <laughs> okay. I, I get hit by a car. I go through the pearly gates and I ask Jesus, which one was it? <laughs> okay. And uh, suppose uh, Jesus says, well, it was the old earth perspective. Hugh Ross was my messenger. And I tried to tell people if that's the case. Cool. All right. I'm down. I'm down with that. Um, if you know, I get to heaven and Jesus says, yep, it's the young earth perspective. Did, don't, don't you know that, that God has the power to create all things in a split second? Come on, man. Um, I'm okay with that as well. Okay. Um, what I am also okay with, but I don't agree with at all. Okay. I am not, nor do I hold to the view that scripture allows, and this is my perspective. I know a lot of people, um, uh, might disagree with this, uh, but I do not believe that a um, a theistic evolutionary perspective is a viable option in terms of understanding uh, the text. There, okay. Uh, now, suppose I get to heaven and God says, "Up, oh, God used evolution. We I used evolution. Okay, 
But as I read the text of scripture, I do not see uh, room for that in ways that perhaps some other Christian brothers uh, may may see that as a viable a viable position to hold. Okay, so I lean more towards a young earth perspective. I do not reprimand folks who hold to an old earth perspective, but I am not a theistic evolutionist. All right. Okay. So I hope that makes sense and kind of uh, allows you to see where I, my flags kind of uh, get rooted in the ground there in terms of really, interestingly enough, a very highly contentious theological um, topic. I mean, there've been tons of books uh, on creation uh, and evolution and, you know, different interpretive models. Uh, it's actually pretty, uh, Pretty interesting. Okay. All right. Um, I see some people uh, send in some questions. You keep, keep them coming. I will definitely address them. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm kind of going to go through some other perspectives here uh, with it, with respect to my own personal theology, and then I'll take some questions there. So we got a couple of good ones. Okay. All right. All right. It's tempting to just kind of stop talking now and just go to some of the, the questions. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let me go through a couple more, uh, a couple of more of my theological positions and then we'll, we'll I got to stay focused. Okay. All right. So another, another topic that I, okay. So I talked about my view of creation. I talked a little bit about my, um, uh, theological position with respect to being reformed, which is no secret for people who watch this, uh, this show, uh, to say that I'm reformed is very ambiguous since there is a lot of variation within the reform uh, tradition. Uh, but so soteriology, I hold to all five points of, of the TULIP acronym. Uh, for example, I am not convinced at all uh, when I listen to uh, my friend Leighton Flowers, uh, who I, I think is a, a brother in Christ, uh, a nice guy with, when it comes to kind of the, our personal interactions. But um, I uh, am not convinced at all of his understanding uh, so I'm not a provisionist. I'm not an Arminian. Um, I tend to be right in line with uh, popular notions of, of what people think of in terms of what Calvinists uh, believe. Okay, so I'm a five-point Calvinist. I hold to total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of uh, the saints. Okay, as a matter of fact, um, guess which uh, one out of the uh, TULIP acronym uh, was the one that was the most difficult for me to affirm. Okay. When you take a look, well, let's define our terms here. So, so folks who aren't familiar with, with Calvinism, uh, Calvinism is with, with the emphasis of, uh, what we call in theology, soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Okay. Uh, if you, you know, learn these theological terms, you have, um, you have theology, which is the study of God, Christology, which is the study of Christ, Okay. You have a uh, harmatology, which is the study of the doctrine of sin. Okay. You have um, eschatology, which is the study of last things. And you have soteriology, which is the study of the doctrine of salvation, ecclesiology, which is the study of uh, the church and things like these are theological terms. Okay. So when I use the term soteriology, I'm, I'm in essence talking about um, the study of the doctrine of salvation. What is my soteriology? What is my belief about how God saves people? Okay. Um, and so when you talk about Calvinism, this is very important. Um, Calvinism is not simply a soteriological perspective. Calvinism is a, a much more broader uh, um, uh, theological perspective. Okay. Um, of which soteriology is a more uh, a more focused emphasis on the question of how does God redeem 
uh, people. Okay. And so out of the, the, the TULIP acronym, there is total depravity, the idea that we are totally and completely covered and touched by sin and all that we are, um, given our state uh, of depravity, uh, no man seeks after God. We are at enmity with God. We are born in sin and trespasses. So left to ourself, left to our own devices, we will never seek after God. Okay. Um, that is why salvation uh, requires unconditional election. Uh, God chooses us from before the foundation of the world because we would not have chosen him. And so God chooses a people. The father chooses a people to give to the son and the son redeems that people. He makes atonement for that people. So you have total depravity, unconditional election. We are predestined before the foundation of the world, not based on anything that we do. And then typically, this is the most difficult pill to swallow for a lot of people. And that is actually the doctrine of limited atonement. Okay. And limited atonement is very difficult for people, um, not only emotionally, because it is difficult to conceive of the idea that the God of the Bible, when it speaks of sending Jesus Christ to die for the world, um, why would God send Jesus to only die for the elect and not for everyone? Okay. So there's kind of an emotional uh, uh, um, objection to limited atonement. And there's a very strong biblical objection. So you have people who reject limited atonement will often appeal to those texts in scripture, which um, emphasize uh, universal language, okay? And John 3, 16, I mean, it's not always used, but I mean, you have that universal language for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So you have that word uh, world there. So it seems like a universal scope. Um, God is the savior uh, of of the world and not only the world, uh, not only those who believe, but for the world. So you have this idea of uh, Jesus dying for, uh, it's kind of a, a universal uh, atonement, okay? Now, that said, while limited atonement has often been the most difficult for people, the last, uh, I actually think limited atonement is clear in scripture in the sense that when you understand the nature of the atonement and substitutionary sacrifice, especially as uh, projected in the book of Hebrews and things like that, um, limited atonement was not a difficult concept for me to uh, understand. When I studied limited atonement and became convinced of it, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I see how that works. What was difficult for me uh, to adopt was actually uh, the I in the TULIP acronym, which is irresistible grace. Okay. That was my own personal struggle. Uh, but at the end, I did, I, I am able to perceive the idea that in Reformed theology and Reformed soteriology, I am of the position that each um, letter in the acronym T-U-L-I-P are logically connected such that if you believe in one, uh, the other aspects seem to follow uh, logically, okay? Um, so that's my position with respect to salvation, uh, election, things like that. I know there's some nuance even within those terms. Uh, perhaps we can talk about that if you have uh, questions uh, with respect to those things, okay? All right, cool. All right, so um, yeah, okay. So um, that's my position with respect to soteriology. I am a five-point Calvinist. My creation position, I lean more towards a young earth perspective. Of course, my apologetics is presuppositional in, in nature. So we, uh, uh, you know, we often talk about that in, in this channel. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's touch the controversial stuff now as though that wasn't controversial. What is my position on speaking in tongues? Okay. 
Um, I wasn't going to touch on this uh, position, but I was like, you know, I'm thinking about it. You know what? I've thought a lot about, uh, you know, position of the, of the charismatic, uh, you know, uh, church and the practices and things like that. Um, for those of you who um, are familiar with some of my beliefs and, and you are, are, are privy to the fact, and if, if you weren't, now you know, that I lean more towards a reformed perspective, I actually was raised in a Pentecostal church. Okay. Um, my entire uh, childhood from age zero to my early 20s, I was a member of an Assemblies of God church. And so my entire foundation, okay, one second. My entire foundation of learning was within the context of a Pentecostal context. Now, gratefully, I am grateful for this, that in my in my own um, life, as I grew up in church, um, I did not go to the sort of Pentecostal church that participated in some of the more extreme charismatic practices where things get a little wild and crazy. Um, I did see a couple of things, especially when we used to go to, um, we had these uh, these things called uh, spring fest or winter fest. And it's usually the, um, these um, big retreats where a bunch of churches would come together. They were the highlights of my childhood, by the way, I, I would not take any of those uh, events back. Uh, I formed some great friendships there. And, and even in the midst of some theological things that were taught that I no longer hold, um, I did learn a lot and, and had a lot of opportunity to grow uh, when I went to, um, you know, these events. But as I look back now, there are a lot of things that I believed at one point but no longer believe today. And we'll talk a little bit um, about that, okay? So first, okay, let, let's go on to some of the, uh, what I would say is the uh, is the less biblical practice within the charismatic church. And I would say less biblical because I don't see it anywhere in scripture is, uh, is the idea of being slain in the spirit. Now, I grew up in the context where people would, fall down. Didn't happen every service. You know, when you have that revival service, then you would have a situation where people would go up to the front. I was, um, altar calls were a big part of my church experience. Okay. And, and I went to a Spanish Pentecostal church and that that's actually different than your generic run of the mill Pentecostal church, because it, within the subculture of, of, of Spanish Hispanic culture, uh, there's a definitely a different flavor, uh, uh then when you go to say, uh, a more American, Pentecostal context. Okay. Uh, if you know anything about Puerto Ricans, I'm a Puerto Rican. Okay. Uh, Puerto Ricans, Hispanic people tend to be very, very passionate. And so, um, passion, energy, right? The music, this was very much a part of my experience when listening to preachers and things like that. And so, um, mixed in with very charismatic speakers, dynamic and confident people uh, preaching with authority, which was something I appreciated. You also had the practice of the altar call and uh, uh, depending on the service or depending on the event, if we went away to one of these spring fest or winter fest, you would have this situation of people falling back. And I remember my first winter retreat, um, we were in, again, I, we were part of what was called the Spanish Eastern District. Okay. And so when we went to these retreats, you had uh, churches from all over Long Island and New York uh, uh, go to this event. So there would be hundreds and hundreds of young people. 
Um, and what was strongly impressed upon my mind, and I could still think of the details now, is that the first event that I went to, um, that was the event that I saw the most people fall out that I've ever seen before. I remember looking around and seeing people all over the floor. It actually looked like, uh, you know, there was a riot. Chairs were flipped upside down. You know, you had the music, uh, you know, the guy was, you know, who's leading worship was singing this, you know, the songs for like uh, the same song for like, you know, an hour. <laughs> I'm like, are we still on this song? Uh, so I was very much a part of that culture. My position with respect to slain in the spirit and this is uh, uh, this is being straightforward. I grew up in that context, uh, so I, I understand how, how things go in that regard. I do not see it in Scripture. Okay, now this is important because when I came to, I, I actually remember what convinced me that slain in the spirit was not biblical. Okay, I remember, um, ironically, if 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 you know, um, I actually had Hank Hanegraaff on my show uh, a while back to talk about Eastern Orthodoxy. And I remember before, of course, uh, Hank converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, he had these little Bible question answer books, okay? And in one of the, the books, there was a small article um, that, um, uh, that treated the, the question of being slain in the spirit. And it was when I first read that, that I began to doubt whether what I was seeing in the church and what I was seeing people experience, whether that was in fact biblical. Now, without getting into too much detail, here's the thing. If I see something in the church and I observe, okay, all right. Now I grew up in a Spanish speaking church. I do not, I don't speak fluent Spanish. I always joke around. I'm a terrible Puerto Rican, okay? You speak to me in Spanish now, I will understand a lot, but I cannot speak back in Spanish. Uh, and so there's still a big gap in terms of my my uh, my Spanish comprehension. But this actually played a role in my own um, studies because I did not understand for the most part the sermons growing up because they were in Spanish. I would spend my time in church, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Sundays. We'd have two services on Sundays, one in the morning, one in the evening. Sometimes the services would be uh, two hours. If we had a, a guest speaker, an evangelist, it'd almost be three hours. I spent my time reading my Bible. I had this little new, new international Bible, uh, new international version, and I read the living daylights out of that from when I was little until I was an adult. So I was observing a lot of these practices of people falling down and things like that with knowledge of the scriptures. Okay. I knew my Bible. And when I observe what was going on around me, what I noticed was I, in all my reading of scripture, I have never seen any of this in the scriptures. Okay. Now, many people will appeal to their own experience. Oh, Eli, you're not spiritual enough. You need to dive deeper into prayer and really experience God. Let me tell you something. To experience God, the idea, the notion of experiencing God must be understood within a context. And the context in which we are to understand what a meaningful experience with God is must be scripture. And for me, I take that very seriously. Now, I'm going to say this very straightforward, but I don't mean it pejoratively towards other people, okay? I'm gonna say this. I do not care about your experience when the choice is scripture versus your experience. Oh, but I've experienced that. Listen, you might've experienced something, but the issue is not whether you experienced it or not. The issue is whether you are interpreting your experience, your experience correctly.
And the Bible is the lens through which we interpret our spiritual experience. And when I read the scriptures, when I flip through the word of God, I do not see anywhere the idea of being slain in the spirit. Where do I see slain in the spirit? Not in scripture, but through church history. Not just only church history do I see slain in the spirit. It is absent for much of church history until you get to recent times, which is typically associated with churches that are not grounded in sound biblical theology and are driven by emotion as opposed to scripture. I remember even sitting at a barbecue talking to a sister in Christ about this very topic. And as I was gently pushing on, well, what does the Bible, what does the Bible, what does the Bible say? This person had the audacity. I won't mention any names, but this person had the audacity to look me in the eye and say, Eli, you know what your problem is? You read the Bible too much. And when that person said that, I felt completely vindicated in my questioning of the validity of things like being slain in the spirit. Things that I've seen in terms of people making animal sounds in worship services. Yeah, not in my own personal church, but I remember going to a service. I invited a friend. It was a tent meeting. It was a very Pentecostal church. Uh, and I don't have any, uh, I have great uh, uh, Pentecostal brothers and sisters. Uh, I consider them my, my brothers in Christ. And not all of, not even most of them would agree with some of the things that I'm saying here. Some people would actually resonate very much with what I'm saying. So I'm not putting uh, all Pentecostals in that category. Okay, I still am friends with Pentecostals and I would go to them for guidance and questions on scripture on certain topics. So it's I'm not clumping everyone uh, together. You do need to be careful with the fallacy of the broad brush. Right. Um, I do not want to paint with a broad brush. The extremes that I'm about to tell you now is not something that all Pentecostals hold to. The people at my my church that I grew up with, what I'm about to tell you, would most likely not agree with this. And so I wouldn't even clump uh, the church that I came from in this category. But I remember that there was a church that was having a tent meeting, kind of an old school revival sort of thing. And um, even back then, when I was a teenager, I was sort of a book nerd. And I knew that when you go to the tent meetings, they sell books in the back. And so I bought, I remember I bought the... Uh, the Biblical Application Study Bible. <laughs> okay. Uh, but just to, to tell you, uh, let me see. Hold up. Maybe so I can find it. Um, I actually have. Oh, my goodness. This is so embarrassing. Okay. I'm not going to embarrass myself completely. I'm only going to embarrass myself partially. Okay. Just to tell you how deep I was in the Pentecostal realm and kind of uh, even flirting with the sort of prosperity uh, gospel and things like that. I have in my hands right here, okay? When did I get this? Oh, my goodness. Okay, this is from 1999. This is a Joyce Myers Bible, okay? Uh, it is old, okay? I, I'm, I'm just going to flip this. I'm afraid to flip this onto the camera because someone's going to put it on pause and, and read it. But right here, uh, let me see if I can put it here. Right here, I have a bunch of notes and goals that I wrote in my Bible as a teenager as to what I wanted to accomplish spiritually and in my life. It's super embarrassing. This is a super old Bible. But I remember um, I bought the, the Biblical Application Study Bible. My mom gave me this Bible. I used to, you know, uh, watch Joyce Meyer sermons and things like that. So I was in things deep. Okay. It was, uh, you know, when I look back now, uh, where I am now is a, a very different, um, uh, I was of a very different perspective uh, back then. But when I invited a friend, okay, to this tent meeting, all right, 
what I began to see and hear people around me, not only was, was there people being, quote, slain in the spirit, but people began to make animal noises. There was a person who was acting like a bird, flapping their arms. And the, even things growing up in a Pentecostal context, I had never seen that before. And I felt mortified because my friend, who was not a Christian, looked at me and said, what's that? He says, I feel, this is, check this out, what he said. He said, I feel like I'm in Noah's Ark with the animals. <laughs> my unbelieving friend said, what do I say to that? Okay. Now let's take away the extremes. Suppose that wasn't happening and simply something like slain in the spirit was occurring. Suppose just that was occurring. And if my friend says, what is that? What biblical justification could I give my friend who is asking about that experience? I couldn't. I couldn't give any biblical justification because it's not in scripture. Okay. So um, I uh, am very skeptical about a lot of what goes on in many uh, charismatic sorts of churches. Okay. Now, if we move towards a more biblical concept, which uh, would be something like speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is in fact biblical. It is in the Bible. You see it in Acts chapter two, uh, where the Holy Spirit um, uh, grants the uh, supernatural ability of individuals to speak languages they do not know. You see this as one of the ways, uh, this was one of the signs of the birth of the church at Pentecost, right? I get that, okay? Now, what is my position? What is my theological belief concerning speaking in tongues, Okay. This a specific area, I tend to be more careful uh, and more nuanced because the idea of speaking in tongues is found in scripture. And I am aware of the arguments that are made by cessationists. Okay, now I'm going to be using a theological term here. Cessationism typically holds to the position that the, uh, the various miraculous gifts have um, they're, they're no longer in effect for the church today. So something like speaking in tongues is not something that we as Christians today should expect. The spirit is not working in that specific fashion. Uh, some argue that there is no need for uh, the gift of prophecy and things like that because we have uh, the scriptures and, and things. I'm familiar with those arguments, okay? And I lean towards the validity of those arguments but I, I, I would have to admit that those arguments are not knocked down in the sense that when I hear the arguments and I, they, I think they make sense and I may even lean towards holding to some of those perspectives, I'm very careful with what I think personally, what I think those arguments actually get you to. And so I would identify myself with respect to speaking in tongues as a cautious, okay, a cautious cessationist. Okay, I resonate with the idea that speaking in tongues is no longer for today because the arguments to me seem somewhat convincing, but they are not knocked down. And so I am open to the idea that if they are for today, I'm not going to say, oh, look, look what's happening. That's unbiblical. No, here is where I draw the line. Okay, here is where I draw the line. What I've experienced in the churches growing up of speaking in tongues, even as a kid, when I read my Bible and I read Acts chapter two, okay, and I see speaking in tongues in scripture, and then I'm at a church service and I observe people speaking in tongues, even as a young uh, teenager, I knew that there was a difference between what I'm reading here 
and what I am observing in my context. I'm going to say that again. Even as a teenager, when I read of speaking in tongues here and I observed speaking in tongues in the churches, I even knew as a teenager, this is not the same thing. There is a unique difference in the biblical description of speaking in tongues versus a lot of what you see in churches today. If speaking in tongues is for today, I am convinced that I have not seen a genuine manifestation of it because biblically speaking in tongues involved speaking an actual language. None of this incoherent babbling. Okay. By the way, the Bible says that when people speak in tongues, there should be two or three at most. And even then there should be an interpreter. How do you interpret babbling? How do you interpret that? If, if someone says, well, when my church, we speak in tongues and it's more of that kind of the incoherent babbling sort, but we have an interpreter. If people interpret what, it, well, how do we know the interpreter is correct? Because the person is not even speaking a legitimate language. You see, when you read scripture though, they are speaking actual languages which is actually one of the divine markers that what was happening here was in fact supernatural, which is a stark difference for what you see in a lot of places in Pentecostal churches today. And so I'm very cautious with respect to how I interpret the experience of speaking in tongues as is manifested in many Pentecostal churches today, because my standard is the scriptures. Okay. Um, and so that is my position with respect to, um, speaking in tongues and things like that. Now, last and certainly not least, and we'll get to your questions. Thank you so much. Uh, there are a couple of questions here that uh, are interesting and hopefully we can get into, to, into some of them. Um, I wanted to share with you my eschatology, okay? Um, eschatology, again, if you are a theological veteran, you'll know what this is. If you are a theological newbie, uh, eschatology is the study of last things. It is, it is typically the last uh, chapter in your systematic theology book. Um, it often pertains, if I can use the popular language, kind of the end of the world sort of thing, uh, 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 the second coming of Christ, the resurrection, the judgment. All right. So I grew up, okay, a Tim LaHaye sort of guy. All right. Growing up, the uh, eschatological position that I was taught was that of the pre-millennial dispensational flavor, okay? And more specifically, along the lines of, say, uh, the Left Behind series, okay? So I believed that in the future, uh, we are expecting a rapture, which uh, I was taught was a sort of secret coming of the Lord in which believers would be caught up in the air um, and be removed from, from the earth. And those who are left behind uh, would be um, here on earth experiencing a, a period of tribulation. Uh, you know the deal, the seven-year tribulation, you have the Antichrist, you have persecution, you have the mark of the beast, as is mentioned in the book of Revelation and things like that. And at the end of the, uh, well, the middle of the seven years, you have the Antichrist breaking a covenant that he that he's established. Um, and, uh, and then at the end of the seven years, you have the, the bodily return of Christ and, of course, the millennial reign and things like that. That was the position that I was uh, raised to believe. However, okay, there was a book that when I read it, it revolutionized my perspective. Now, I might share the title of this book with you, which I'm about to. Um, and you might totally disagree with the eschatological position that I'm going to put forth right now. Uh, but okay. Whether you agree or disagree for me, 
when I read this specific book that I'm now going to mention in just a few moments, it forced me to look at what I took for granted from a different perspective. Okay. I began to see what I was taught with respect to the end times. I began to see how weak it was from my perspective scripturally. There were pieces of scripture that I read that did not seem to um, fit the model that I was being taught. And so I brought questions to various pastors and uh, informed believers at the time. And I, I wasn't very happy with um, the explanations that I was that I was being given. And of course, I was seen as kind of that annoying guy. You know, Excuse me, I have a question. And then I wouldn't leave the person alone, uh, you know, uh, I think I think my dad used to teach Bible Institute or um, or maybe he was taking a class or whatever. And I would go with my dad and I would kind of wait uh, in the pastor's office until he was done. And um, sometimes I'd catch the pastor in his office and I I'd say, hey, you know, pastor, I have a question. OK. And it wasn't even necessarily my pastor. There are other pastors that were associated with the Biblical Institute that uh, my dad uh, taught some classes or he was a student there. And so I would, I would talk to uh, a bunch of people and I was very dissatisfied with a lot of the answers I was given. So what is the name of the book uh, that changed my perspective on eschatology? And it was actually, interestingly enough, my backdoor entrance into the study of apologetics. I actually was exposed to Greg Bonson by this person's literature and things like that. And that was the book, Last Day's Madness, The Obsession of the Modern Church by Gary DeMar, okay? Uh, once I read that book, my entire perspective was changed and most specifically relating to what I really had an issue with when I read my Bible. And that was the time texts of scripture. So for example, when you read the Olivet Discourse, which is uh, paralleled in Matthew 24, Luke 21 and Mark 13. Okay. Uh, you take, for example, Matthew chapter 24, um, and you see the description of what many believe is a description of the great tribulation uh, period. And then you get to Matthew 24, 34, I believe it's 34, uh, where Jesus says, and this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And when I'm reading this in Last Day's Madness, the obsession of the modern church, I'm trying to understand, well, wait a minute, you know, this generation can mean this and can mean that. Um, but uh, Gary DeMar was correct when he said that when you do a study of the phrase, this generation, it always means and only means the specific generation to which uh, you know, who is being spoken to at that time. Okay. And of course, if you look at some study Bibles who hold to a more premillennial dispensational position, they'll say, well, this generation refers to that generation of the future who experiences these signs. That wasn't convincing to me at all. Okay. I was like, well, this seems to mean this. And if it means that, then the word that should have been used in Matthew 24, 34. So there were certain kind of blocks, theological blocks that began to tumble down and really begin to uh, change my perspective. You know, people ask me, you know, are we living in the last days? Well, um, that's funny. The phrase last days is, is found in scripture. And so, you know, when you read, um, for example, uh, Hebrews chapter one, Okay, uh, let me actually turn there real quick. Um, I know it by heart, but let me uh, actually go there so that I can read it more specifically here, more accurately. Um, do, 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 do. Hebrews chapter one says, reading from my Joyce Meyer study Bible. <laughs> okay, no judgment here. Okay, no judgment here. 
it's not really a study Bible. There's not even any notes in it. I don't know. Maybe she wrote the introductions to the, the, I'm not sure. I don't know what, how she, con how she contributed to this, but yeah, I don't know. At any rate, Hebrews chapter one says, uh, <laughs> the following. Okay. Um, in many separate revelations. Okay. Each of which, this is a weird reading. Maybe I shouldn't read from the Joyce Meyer Bible. Actually, I'm going to read it. Look, look what it says. Very interesting translation here. It says, in many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth, and in different ways, God spoke of old to our forefathers in and by the prophets. Verse 2, okay, which is, uh, that's a really weird uh, translation there. Um, but at verse 2, it says, and this is the relevant portion here, but in the last days, uh, in the last of these days, uh, a better translation would say in these last days, um, he has uh, spoken to us in the person of his son. Okay. So I, it's kind of annoying to read that uh, translation. Let me, let me get something more orthodox. Hold up. Time out. Okay. And when I say orthodox, when I say orthodox, I'm going to be reading from the translation uh, uh, that the Apostle Paul used, uh, which is the NASB, okay? Um, by the way, NASB and the ESV are my two favorite Bible translations. A little shout out um, uh, real quick. Now, interestingly enough, this is the MacArthur Study Bible, who uh, <laughs> who is a Reformed pastor who would disagree with what I'm saying, because if you know, uh, John MacArthur does hold to a, a sort of dispensational eschatology, so... Um, I'm going to read from Hebrews, but I won't read from John MacArthur's notes on this topic uh, because there is going to be an obvious disagreement there. Okay. All right. Let's see. Hebrews chapter one in the NASB. Thank you so much for bearing with me as I make a fool out of myself as I frantically look for the book of Hebrews. Where is the book of Hebrews? This is embarrassing. I'm a Christian apologist. I, this is, I should know this. Okay. You got James there okay all right there's titus and philemon there we go hebrews i found hebrews congratulations <laughs> i see some people laughing about making comments about the joyce meyer translation i think i think this translation this joyce meyer bible is an amplified it's amplified translation so it will amplify certain words. And so that's why you have uh, the weird wording there. Uh, oh man, I'm so glad I never got rid of this one. This is hilarious. Uh, and of course I have some of my personal notes from back in the day. Okay, so Hebrews chapter one from the truly inspired version, the NASB, <laughs> okay, the New American Standard Bible. The New American Standard Bible is my translation. I actually had to do a little uh, uh, piece there um, uh, for uh, Chris Arnzen's show, Iron Sharpens Iron. He asked me to give a shout out to the NASB. Uh, it is my favorite translation, so you should pick yourself up a translation of the NAS NAS NASB. Okay, so chapter one, uh, verse one and two of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, et cetera, et cetera. In these last days, okay? So when people ask me, are we living in the last days? I take that phrase and try to understand it within a biblical context. The book of Hebrews was written over 2,000 years ago. And the author of the book of Hebrews apparently believed the days in which he was living in was, in some sense, the last days. Question is, the last days of what? So the end of the world? 
is the end of the age, which is more specifically relevant to Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. And this is where, when I read uh, Gary DeMar's book, there was a very clear distinction between the end of the world and the end of the age and the, 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 the time period leading up to and including the destruction of the temple. Reading that book and examining the scriptures that Gary DeMar used to support his position, I have come to hold to what is known as the partial preterist perspective. So in my eschatology, my view of end times, I am a partial preterist, okay? Preterist referring to the past, partial referring to the idea that I do not believe everything in scripture is fulfilled. I am still awaiting a bodily return of Christ, um, a resurrection of, of, of the dead, a transformation of the living, the twinkling of an eye, as Thessalonians says. Um, I'm still waiting for those things, but specific references to example for say, uh, the great tribulation, a seven year tribulation. I believe these are things that actually had relevance to um, the people back then because you have this time language of not only last days back then, not only this generation back then, but you have indicators all throughout scripture, most interestingly enough, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, where the word uh, near and soon occurs. Now, this was this was an interesting one. I remember sitting in, in a pastor's office and, uh, and, and I'm not undermining um, intelligent believers who hold to a premillennial dispensational position. Um, there are people who can uh, very, very strongly, I think, argue their position. And, and then there's a kind of an interesting debate to be had in that respect. But I remember reading Revelation chapter one, uh, verses one through three to a pastor. And I said, well, pastor, okay. When we read the book of Revelation, um, the book of Revelation is heavily metaphoric. Okay, the the literary genre of Revelation uh, is manifested in what we call apocalyptic literature. And so there's a lot of symbolism. As a matter of fact, two thirds of the book of Revelation is actually referenced to uh, Old Testament concepts. And so if you are ignorant, okay, of the Old Testament, you will be ignorant of the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation presupposes an Old Testament context through which to view many of the symbols, many of the imagery and things like that. That's very important. Now, but before you get to the imagery, before you get to the symbolism, before you get to the highly disputed, this means this and that means that, you have the introduction, which is not very symbolic, which is not very metaphoric. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter one, verses one through three, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Question. This was my question. I remember sitting in the office. The book of Revelation was written over 2000 years ago. Me personally, I'm convinced of the earlier dating. If you know anything about uh, studies in the book of Revelation, there are two competing dates for when Revelation was written. Um, and the, the where you stand on that date is very relevant to the sp specific interpretation you give to the book. Uh, the most popular, I think, and most widely held, I think, don't quote me on this, is the position that the book of Revelation was written around AD 95. Okay. Um, I hold to the position that the book of Revelation was written before the year AD 70. Okay. Um, I am of the position that all the books of the New Testament were completed um, before uh, the year AD 70. Okay. And I think there's good external and internal evidence for that. Okay. Um, but I remember asking 
Pastor, if the book of Revelation was written 2000 years ago and we are reading the book of Revelation and a lot of it we take to be referring to things in our future, why does the introduction of the book of Revelation speak of the things of which it's recording as events that must occur soon for the time is near? And of course, there are more sophisticated defenses of it. But as I was studying, this was an unacceptable, um, unacceptable answer. Uh, he looks at the passage and he says, well, for God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. All that to indicate, well, based on God, I mean, time is different for God. Okay. I'm sorry. That doesn't work for me. Because the book of Revelation was written to specific churches that were located in actual history and the words near and soon were very much relevant to them because they were the ones that needed to hear the message of Revelation, hear the encouragement of Revelation and hear the warnings of judgment in Revelation. And so I did not buy that. And so I kind of jumped on the uh, Gary DeMar, partial preterist, Kenneth Gentry sort of uh, um, perspective. And I've been there ever since convinced that that is, with some caveats, that is probably what is going on uh, with respect to the eschatological position. Eli, but Eli, I have a question. Where are you in terms of your millennial position? Okay. My first answer is, I don't know. And if you put a gun to my head, I'm a post-millennialist, okay? I tend to lean towards a, uh, a post-millennialist, um, you know, uh, uh, perspective, okay? Things look a little crummy now, but I, I do believe that the gospel will eventually uh, engulf uh, this context and the gospel will, uh, will spread forth and have an overall positive uh, impact upon the world. I am not of the more pessimistic eschatological positions, okay? So that is my position with respect to eschatology, all right? Now, I'm going to take a sip of water. Hopefully, I won't get fired from my job because I need my voice because I'm a teacher. So hopefully when I teach tomorrow, I can speak. But let me take a guzzle of water and we'll take a look at some of these questions that are coming in. All right? All right. Oh, good. Okay. Whew. Now let's go and take some questions. Again, as I made the caveat at the beginning, I am not a professional theologian in the sense of being, uh, you know, I don't have a PhD in theology or whatever, uh, but I have studied enough theology that I kind of know the basic landscape. And so I will try my best uh, to answer uh, your questions. Okay. First, I'd like to give a shout out to Arthur Bear, who said, uh, love the channel, Eli. Praise God, you're okay from the COVID. Yes. And um, reason why I put that up on the screen is I greatly appreciate that. Yes. I just recently recovered from COVID. It was horrible. I um, thought I was just going to have some light symptoms and maybe just read books all day. That didn't happen. So um, I'm glad to be uh, better. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Melissa Owens also, she says, glad you're getting better, brother. Praise God. Thank you so much. Uh, here's a profound theological question from a friend of mine, Joshua Pillows. Why are you so good looking? I don't know. It's probably because of uh, the genes. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay. All right. Let's see here. I'm going to go through some of these. Okay. Uh, again, so Michael Borg is asking a question that I did cover. Eschatology, what's your view on that? Um, just if I can give the terminology, okay? I grew up premillennial dispensational. 
I am currently a partial preterist and I am a post-millennialist with respect to my millennial position. Okay. Um, and so that would be my, my eschatological uh, position. Of course, a couple of people asked uh, that question. Um, so uh, hopefully that is a sufficient answer. Uh, we have a question from Kamu. Okay. I like that. Kamu and the icon is a little cow there. Very cool. Very creative. Uh, would you say that free will exists if God knows what is going to happen in the first place? If God has a plan uh, put in place and already knows what is going to happen, how can we have uh, free will? All right. Well, um, it depends what you mean by free will. If we take free will in a sort of generic libertarian sense, I don't believe that the foreknowledge of God uh, diminishes uh, a certain understanding of free will. So for example, if you hold to a kind of a foreknowledge perspective, foreknowledge does not equal causation. So if God knows what you're going to do, that doesn't mean he causes you to do uh, what you're doing. Okay. Um, it really boils down to the issue of what you mean by free will. And, um, uh, you know, is this a libertarian free will? Are you thinking in terms of compatibilistic free will? Um, are you a theological determinist uh, with respect to uh, God's decrees and and how the whole issue of the will plays out? Uh, that's really going to depend. However, you don't want to make the simple mistake, okay, of thinking that because God knows that therefore, up, oh, we're not free. Foreknowledge is not inconsistent with making a free choice. And I would actually agree with the libertarian. If you're going to defend libertarianism, me personally, I'm not convinced of the foreknowledge argument removing free will. There are ways in which you can work that out that um, is not as devastating as one might think. Now, there are people who argue along those lines. I believe, if I remember correctly, Martin Luther um, held to this view that uh, foreknowledge kind of uh, throws free will to the ground. And uh, But I do think there's a much more nuanced uh, discussion to be, to be had there with respect to that particular topic. Here's the thing with the issue of free will. Um, as with everything, when you're doing apologetics or whatever, you must, you must define your terms. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, someone sent me a meme, uh, uh, of a joke. Um, and it was a joke. I mean, it was all said and fun, but someone says, you know, uh, why did the, the Calvinist cross the road? Okay. And of course, uh, you know, it's a, a play on the, on the classic, the very classic and smart and intelligent joke. Uh, why did the chicken cross the road? Okay. Why did the Calvinist cross the road? Answer, he had no choice, okay? Uh, now it's a joke, it's funny, whatever, um, but it is actually based upon a common misconception that if you're a Calvinist and you believe that God decrees whatever comes to pass, that therefore Calvinists do not believe in free will. That is not true, okay? Calvinists do believe in free will. What they reject is a particular kind of free will. And people who are not studied in the theology and philosophy of this topic will tend to just take free will as a blanket statement that kind of has a straightforward meaning. Actually, the topic of free will is very nuanced. You have different categories and understanding of free will. And of course, you have the thorny situation of understanding particular sorts of free will within the context of God's meticulous sovereignty or lack thereof. Perhaps you alter a position in which God is not meticulously sovereign in particular ways that reformed folks understand. So defining terms is vitally important. Okay. I hope that makes sense. All right. Let's go down here. Uh, let's see here. All right. So Joshua Ayala. Hey, is that a family member? He's got the same last name. I have so many family. 
on my dad's side alone, I think we have like 12 or 13 aunts and uncles. And then I don't even know how many cousins I have. So this person might actually be related to me. The picture's too small for me to see. Uh, so, okay. So here's a question. Uh, does God contradict himself? One of the 10 commandments says thou shall not kill. And later he sends the people of Israel to, uh, to kill. Uh, that's true. Uh, God commands the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites. Uh, when you're talking about the, the, the conquest of the land of Canaan, the, the land that God promised uh, to Abraham. Again, this is uh, based on a very important nuance of terminology. Uh, there is a difference, believe it or not, between the notion of killing and the notion of murder. Uh, the Ten Commandments does not necessarily forbid killing Okay, uh, it might some translations might use that terminology, but the idea behind that is murder. Now, what is the difference between murder and killing? Killing is the taking of life. Murder is the unlawful taking of life. Okay, that is actually a very important distinction. There are certain contexts in which it is appropriate to take life. One being, okay, self-defense. Another being when God is using you as his instrument of judgment upon uh, the nation of, uh, uh, of the people of Canaan. Okay, God commanded not to murder the Canaanites, but to kill them as an instrument of his divine judgment. Okay, the reality is whether you agree with that or not, or you think that's cool or not, or right for God to do it is irrelevant. If God is God, then he is the giver of life. He can take life and he is sovereign and in control and in authority enough to take life in any manner he sees appropriate. People make a big apologetic deal about the destruction of the Canaanites and how this is a problem for the Bible. No, it's not a problem for the Bible. It's a problem for people who have a squishy, unbiblical, and inaccurate picture of who God is. God is the most loving, compassionate being in all of existence, but God is the most dangerous being in all of existence. And the Old Testament specifically tells us and shows us and reflects the idea that he is a God that is not to be trifled with. Okay, God gave time for repentance. And of course, when he saw fit for executing judgment, he executes judgment by using the people of Israel. And of course, the people of Israel later on for their disobedience experiences the judgment and wrath of God. Okay, so there is no contradiction. Um, it is not a command to not take any life. It is a command not to um, uh, commit murder. And in a day-to-day -day normal experience, you are not to go and take someone's life for illegitimate reasons. Obviously, Moses is giving the Ten Commandments, is giving it to by God, he gives it to the people. And of course, he knows they're going into uh, the land that was promised to Abraham and that they're going to engage in conflict. Joshua knew this, okay? Uh, I'm not being sarcastic. Um, I, I just want you to think in terms, they weren't dumb. It, we're not going to have like, oh, God says, don't kill. And then God says, okay, don't kill. Now I want you to go and kill. It's not, it's... We want to give uh, these folks a little bit of credit that there are important nuances that they would have been able to distinguish between. Okay. So very, very important. That's a great question, by the way. Um, all right. So uh, Jeff Robertson says, you believe God ordains all things which come to pass, right? Yes, that is correct. I believe. Uh, yeah, I believe that. <laughs> okay. Uh, he goes on to say, uh, I think every fact is a revelation of the eternal plan of God. I agree. That's right. Everything that comes to pass. Um, all right. So let's remove that there. Okay. I'm not sure if there's a question, but I'm kind of just says at revealed apologetics. So I'm assuming it's worthy of reading here. Okay. So Chris, Chris Mabe says, uh, revealed apologetics. Okay. So not a theological question, 
but what area of North Carolina did you move to and how do you like it? I used to live in Charlotte, but now I'm in the Hickory area. Okay, so I moved from Long Island, New York to um, uh, North Carolina, more specifically the Clayton area. Clayton is located um, about a half hour, 40 minutes uh, from the city of Raleigh. So that, that's where I am. I'm about three hours away from Charlotte. And that's why if people followed uh, my Facebook and uh, Instagram, I posted some pictures uh, where I had the pleasure of meeting with Hank Hanegraaff, uh, the host of the Bible Answer Man. Um, I went to the, the studio there to talk to him about some Eastern Orthodox stuff. And then I visited Reformed Theological Seminary, where I hung out with uh, Dr. James Anderson and talked a little bit uh, about some presuppositional apologetics. So I don't live near the Charlotte area, but we're about three hours away, which is kind of a nice uh, a nice day trip. Okay, so hopefully that answers your question here. Um, Brian Sphere, uh, that's a, that's a cool last name, Sphere, Mr. Sphere. Do you reject double predestination or hyper-Calvinism? Now, I'm not sure if you are equating double predestination with hyper-Calvinism. There is not a one-to-one -one correspondence be between that. Um, if you mean double predestination, um, in, in a sense, um, what I would reject is the idea of equal ultimacy. Okay. Um, so I believe that if God chooses and elects a certain people, then that by extension would exclude other people, right? So if there are 10 people in a room and I choose, um, eight people to come and, you know, come into another room and kind of have fellowship with me, then by extension, choosing the eight people, I'm excluding two, right? Uh, did the math correct there? Yeah. Um, so yeah, in a sense, um, I believe in double predestination, but I reject equal ultimacy. With respect to um, uh, God's saving power, I believe that the power that God extends to regenerate a dead sinner is not equally the same as when he uh, passes over what we call uh, within the theological context, the reprobate. So I don't think that they are a mirror image that when God uh, saves his elect, there is a kind of opposite extension of power uh, that is put forth upon the reprobate that keeps them in their sin or, or something like that. I don't believe that perspective. Okay. Um, Hyper-Calvinism is not exactly the same as double predestination. Hyper-Calvinism is a much broader perspective, um, which um, runs into some uh, incorrect theological conclusions and affects um, their perception of evangelism and things like that. So there are a lot of other different problems with hyper-Calvinism. I wouldn't necessarily equate hyper-Calvinism with double predestination. Okay. All right. Uh, post Tenebrous Lux uh, asks, hi, Eli, are you a theonomist? Now, that this is an odd question. And post Tenebrous Lux, okay, okay, uh, after darkness light, if those of you don't know what that means, uh, it's kind of nice uh, reformed uh, slogan. Um, it's a weird question, not because it's a, in and of itself, it's a weird question. The weird question is that I'm supposed to be somewhat of an expert on Greg Bonson and presuppositional thought. Uh, but with all of my study of Bonson, his apologetic literature, uh, one thing that I have not delved into in uh, the amount of depth, re depth required for me to kind of come down strong on a position here is I have not really delved deep into his uh, position concerning theonomy. Okay. When you speak of theonomy, those uh, folks who might not know what theonomy is referring to, it is referring to uh, the law of God, theos, God, uh, namas. We deal with the law. It deals with the application of the Old Testament law within our current context. Are we to hold um, Old Testament law 
uh, in usage today with respect to um, the political situation. See, for example, if you hold to a, theon a, a theonomic perspective, there are some controversial positions regarding, say, uh, the death penalty for homosexuals. So there's an application, right? They, ap they apply Old Testament law to some of our current moral situations. Um, and how that works out is kind of different within uh, that camp. Uh, but they do have specific positions with respect to how Old Testament law applies to our modern context, okay? It's actually a very important topic. Unfortunately, I have not studied theonomy specifically enough to come down um, strong on a position there. So unfortunately, I can't answer that question uh, with any uh, certainty, all right? All right. All right, moving along. Uh, I do apologize if I skip a question. I'm just looking for the words question. Okay, Arthur Bear asks the question, what are your thoughts on the use of the sinner's prayer? Uh, um, I, I kind of resonate with folks who say that the sinner's prayer is not really uh, the biblical model for repentance, I suppose. Uh, you do have people who take issue with that. Generically speaking, if by sinner's prayer, it is a prayer that consists of someone admitting they're a sinner, their need for a savior, and that they're putting their, their faith in Christ, and it is done um, out of a genuine heart that is uh, reflecting true regeneration. I do believe that God listens to such uh, a prayer. And in that sense, it would be uh, a valid uh, a prayer. Do I encourage the sinner's prayer in the way that it's encouraged today? And it's almost this idea that if you say the right words, you know, this means you get your stamp on your hand and you're going to go to heaven. We no. Okay. Uh, the real issue with respect to repentance and things like that, um, and acknowledging that one's a sinner is really an issue of the heart. Okay. And of course that is something that, uh, God is, is looking at not so much the correctness of our words when we are speaking, Lord, I'm a sinner and blah, blah, blah. It is more of the condition of the heart, right? We can see the outward appearance. God looks in, at the heart. And I think uh, in that regard, um, I don't think it's completely illegitimate, but I do see the danger uh, with how it is typically understood uh, within uh, popular discourse. Okay. All right. This is an easier, uh, an easy question. Uh, Kyperian Berean says uh, coffee or tea. Absolutely. Definitely coffee. I tell everyone there are two things I need in life to succeed and to get along. And that is coffee and Jesus, not in that order. Uh, if you have coffee and Jesus, that's heresy. But if it's Jesus and coffee, that's just good theology. All right. Thank you so much, Kyperian Berean, for that. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Okay, so uh, George Huertas says, uh, or he makes a comment here, I was I was just told today by someone that God can make someone be slain in the spirit if he wants, in his refutation to my stating it was unbiblical. Uh, uh, sure, God can send uh, a spaceship to earth with Martians from another planet if he wanted. Uh, the, the fact is, what is our standard in evaluating these various practices within the church? Okay. If you're going to argue uh, using the God can do whatever he wants, you still run into the problem uh, of the fact that God has revealed to us what he wants. And what does God want? God wants us to evaluate various practices in light of his word. Done. You've refuted their position. Well, God can do anything he wants. Cool. Well, the Bible states that he wants us to evaluate things according to his word. We are to test all things. And if you are engaging in a practice that's not biblical, right, 
then I can't test it biblically in the sense that, well, if you're going to say God can just do whatever and it's valid, then you are you are invalidating the very test that God tells us to use in evaluating uh, and discerning between truth and error. All right. You, you can't do that. Now, people say, well, George, OK, you know what your problem is, George? Uh, your problem is you put God in a box. Right. You ever hear that? Especially when you're talking to uh, folks who hold uh, to uh, these various practices, you put God in a box. No, I don't put God in a box. The reality is that God has put himself, his will, and the way he functions and relates to us, he put himself in a book. And that book is his word. And he commands us that we are to evaluate all things in accordance with his word. It is God who imposes the limits with which he will function and gives us the standard by which we are to judge the validity of supposed experience experiences of God and various teachings and things like that. Okay. So that's very important. Uh, you can kind of turn the tables on someone who reasons along those lines and you can give him what we call in logic, a reductio ad absurdum and actually show the absurd conclusion that would result if we were to argue along those lines. Well, the Bible doesn't say it, but God could do it if he wanted to. Is that now how we're going to defend doctrine? Uh, certain prophetic visions that people have or some spiritual experiences. Is, is that is that what we're doing now? We're not going to go by the word of God. But we're going to say, well, God could do it this way. I'm not concerned with what God could do. I'm concerned with what God has done, what God has said, and how that relates to how I am to evaluate as a faithful Christian, how I am to evaluate uh, various truth claims that uh, may or may not be detrimental to uh, the body of Christ. Okay? All right. Do-do-do-do-do. Uh, Let's see here. Moving along. Looking for questions. Moving through the comments. <laughs> NASB, the non-Arminian Standard Bible. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Let's see here. Do, 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 do. Let's see here. A lot of comments. It's good, 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 good. Let's see. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, all right. So uh, J.D. Freeze says, how much of Revelation do you think is uh, fulfilled? Uh, okay. That, that, that's a very difficult question. I did make mention uh, in passing that I do believe in a future bodily return of Jesus Christ. So I don't believe that happened. Um, so references to, 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 you know, some elements where people kind of, uh, think in terms of like the great tribulation and, and various things with the symbols, um, uh, in revelation, I do think a lot of those things referred to events leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem, but revelation, unlike Matthew 24, Mark, uh, third, uh, Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13, which are more historical descriptions of what they were to experience in terms of the persecution and the, and the things leading up to the destruction of the temple. Revelation is a more apocalyptic and metaphoric description of a lot of what we are reading in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. Okay. Uh, so in that respect, um, you know, the, the words that are governed by time indicators, I tend to see as fulfilled with some caveats uh, uh, which are rooted in, uh, say, the second coming, the final judgment, I don't believe uh, happened. Um, and so I am awaiting right now, um, not a secret rapture. I associate the rapture with the second coming. 
Okay, and uh, so I'm I'm awaiting the the bodily return of Christ, the resurrection of 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 the dead, the transformation of the living, the new heavens and the new earth. Anything that is related to tribulation period and all that sort of stuff that's associated with the traditional premillennial dispensational perspective, I believe, has been um, uh, uh, fulfilled. Now, if you say, well, how much of Revelation do you think is fulfilled? And you're asking me chapter and verse. I don't know where to divide that uh, off the top of my head. OK. All right. Uh, let's see here. Moving along. Good, 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 good. Uh, there's a question by Brian Sphere. Do you reject double predestination? I answered partially that question. And have you gone into pneumatology? Um, I know I did not go into pneumatology, but I did mention some theological terms that are important to be familiar with. Uh, we said theology, we said Christology, there's even bibliology, uh, harmatology, the study of, of sin. And you also have pneumatology. That is correct. Uh, eschatology, ecclesiology, the study of the church. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Um, if you want to know my position uh, concerning the Holy Spirit, yeah, I believe the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, I reject any theological position that depersonalizes the third person of the Trinity. I, I actually remember uh, inviting a Jehovah's Witness into my home, and uh, we talked about the personality of the Holy Spirit. And so I just asked a simple question. I said, well, if the Holy Spirit is not a person, question, why when I read scripture, he is described, the Spirit is described with uh, personal attributes? And of course, this particular Jehovah's Witness oddly said, well, it's metaphoric, to which I responded, metaphoric for what? It just seems to suggest that the Holy Spirit is described with personal pronouns, right? Um, so I believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, unfortunately, in many quarters of uh, Protestant Christianity and evangelicalism today, very, very much... Um, uh, put to the side. We acknowledge the Holy Spirit, but there's not a great emphasis. I think a lot of it is due to the fear of overemphasis of the Spirit, which we see in a lot of the prosperity churches and various Pentecostal churches. But I do think this is one of the things I've appreciated um, um, the, the, the Eastern Orthodox position. Now, again, I'm not Eastern Orthodox. I think Eastern Orthodoxy has a false gospel. And I've been doing some study. We've been doing some videos concerning that topic. However, one thing that I have valued um, from the Eastern Orthodox tradition is the great emphasis they place on the triune God, the concept of the Trinity. And I think the evangelical church and Protestant churches need to capture that emphasis uh, because we serve a triune God. Um, and while we give lip service to the idea, sometimes we tend to overemphasize preaching and teaching on uh, perhaps God the Father and, of course, God the Son. And then the Holy Spirit is often cast to the side with not much uh, emphasis. That's not everybody, but that has been my experience in various quarters. So uh, with respect to pneumatology, yep, I hold to a... Uh, uh, a very strong view of the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Uh, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is also involved in the issue of sanctification, okay? Um, and um, I do place a high um, perspective on the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer today, all right? All right, let's see here. Do, 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 do. All right, uh, David, hello, David. He says, do you follow a specific reading plan? <clears throat> Uh, the short answer is no. I don't read a. I don't follow a specific plan in the sense that I wake up in the morning and say, "All right, I'm going to follow my read the Bible in a year plan," which, by the way, I highly recommend if you can do that. There are some great plans available. Um, if you go to the the Bible app, uh, there's some plans that you can pick that cater to uh, your reading patterns. However, when I read uh, the Bible, 
Um, and I typically give advice for people who are looking to read the Bible, but don't know where to start. I typically do point people in a specific direction. Um, for example, my popular answer when I say, when someone says, Hey, Eli, where should I start reading the Bible? I give two, uh, two first, um, suggestions. If you don't like to read, read the gospel of Mark. And the only reason why I say that is the gospel of Mark is a shorter gospel and the narrative moves along very quickly. So if you're not a big reader and you just want to get a quick overview of the ministry of Jesus and what he's all about, jump into the gospel of Mark. That might be a good place to kind of get your feet wet and in, um, introducing yourself to kind of the overall story of the gospel. Um, when I don't suggest the gospel of Mark um, and you don't mind reading and getting a little deeper, um, I do suggest the gospel of John. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptics, they are called, um, uh, uh, they are very different than when you read Jesus in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John places more so than Matthew, Mark, Luke, it, they place a greater emphasis upon the who of Jesus. And when you become a Christian and you are just starting off in your walk with Christ, um, your concern is going to be, well, who is Jesus? I want to know who Jesus is. Uh, intimately. And I think the gospel of John does that in a way that um, perhaps the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't go in, uh, into the person of Christ from the angle that John takes. So for example, um, you read Matthew and Luke and you have these genealogies that connect Jesus to uh, historical individuals, establishing him as the son of David and uh, you know things like that. Um, but then again, when you read the gospel of John, you, your mind is transported automatically, not to Jesus's family line, not to Jesus being the son of David, but in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh right there in the prologue of the gospel of John. We are given the true nature of the son of he is not simply a carpenter from Nazareth. He is God in flesh. And I think that's a beautiful place for someone to start to really kind of dive deep into who Jesus is as the God man and the importance of understanding who he is with relation to our newfound salvation as we grow and grow. After you read John, I highly recommend you jump into the book of Acts so that you see the work, pneumatology, the work of the spirit in the development and growth of the early church. I think that's a, a very important uh, place. And then of course you could dip into some of the shorter letters of uh, say first and second, third John and the, the, uh, the Pauline epistles and things like that. Okay. There is no specific place that you must start. Um, you know, when you read a book, where do you mostly start? Okay. You mostly start in the beginning. And so when someone says, oh, where am I going to start? Maybe I'll start with Genesis. Um, cool. You can start with Genesis and there's there's great value in starting with Genesis, uh, but it's definitely not uh, the book I, I typically uh, point to for a person who is looking to just dive into the Bible for the first time. All right. Excuse me. All right. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, J Flo says free will. Leighton Flowers is about to enter the chat. <laughs> Give Leighton a break. I know a lot of people, uh, you know, they can get annoyed at some of the things that he says and stuff. Uh, I have to admit, um, I know there are a lot of people who have different opinions about Leighton Flowers, but in in my personal interactions with him, uh, he has been nothing but respectful and, and reasonable. And while we we disagree strongly, um, I do appreciate um, interacting with him. Um, I consider him uh, a friend there. Okay. Uh, Stephen R Rivard, uh, I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. Uh, question. Jesus is obviously the word of God. Is it possible that the Holy Spirit is the wisdom of, of God? 
Um, I'd be very careful uh, with um, attributing certain attributes to certain persons. You have to understand that when you're dealing with um, God, uh, there is a very important doctrine of God, which relates to the theological concept of the simplicity of God. And so when we deal with the doctrine of the simplicity of God, it is very much wrapped up in uh, two key concepts, uh, one of which is the idea that the simplicity of God refers to the idea that God is not composed of parts. He is spirit, John 4, 24. Uh, but that if you get into some more traditional and classical versions of the doctrine of simplicity, uh, there is this notion that God is equal to his attributes. And so the attributes of the son are shared by the attributes of the spirit are shared by the attributes of the father. And in that sense, they are equal. Um, so I wouldn't say, well, uh, the spirit is the wisdom of God, but Jesus is the word of God. I would also say Jesus is the wisdom of God as well, right? Jesus is the logos, all right? Jesus is the, the incarnated Christ is the physical manifestation of the very heart and mind of God. Uh, he is the very wisdom uh, of God. And in that sense, they all share those uh, attributes, of course, with different emphasis as uh, as they are being revealed progressively throughout scripture. So I'd be very careful uh, in assigning certain labels to one person, but not to the other person of the Trinity, all right? All right. Uh, there we go. Here's that practical, that practical question, right? Le polygite. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. Says, does God predestine your spouse? Uh, well, if you consider what I said before, that God uh, decrees everything that comes to pass, I would say that even the person you marry is uh, part of the decree of God. Okay. Uh, that being said, you need to be very careful. Okay, this is where you get into some dangerous territory um, that when we live our life, we do not want to live our life always thinking from the God's eye perspective. I do not know prior to being married who my wife is going to be. I still have to live my life, talk to people, talk to the girl that I like, you know, take her out to dinner, go on a date. You still have to do the scary stuff of interpersonal uh, uh, uh interactions okay god decrees and predestines the ends and he also predestines the means by which those ends are are met okay and so there's an there's a practical issue people say well god has a wife for me out there somewhere and so they'll use that mentality uh as an excuse to kind of just sit around and say well then that means i really don't have to do anything because god's going to provide i'm just going to wait on god you know biblical waiting is not necessarily sitting on your hands and just doing nothing. Biblical waiting is typically manifested in activity. And the activity that we do is a sign of, of trust in God's purposes and promises in our life that we step out in faith and walk in wisdom as God fulfills his plans and purposes in our lives. So you want to keep those things in a balance. Yes, God predestines the ends, but he also predestines the means. God elects people to salvation, but the means by which they elect experience salvation is through the, the means and the proclamation of the gospel. That is very, very, very important to keep in mind. Okay. All right. So, uh, Hunter asked a fun question. We'll, we'll see if this is a fun question. Okay. Let's see. What do you think of the idea that we could be the early church as in this world will persist so far into the future? We will be viewed as quote, the early church. Uh, sure. Yeah. If we go on for another 20, 30,000 years, uh, yeah, we can be considered, uh, uh, placed in a particular timeline in the broader scope of things as being quote, early, as long as you specify what you mean by early, because even early can be a relative term. You have early, but then you have the people who are right there at the beginning. So what is the span of early? Uh, I suppose, yes, we could be understood as, quote, the early 
church uh, if there is uh, a longer time into the future uh, that we progress there. Okay. Um, this is a popular question that I keep getting asked. And unfortunately, I have no answer. Um, my wish is to write a curriculum um, uh, for young people on the topic of presuppositional apologetics that can be used in this context and to write a book on presuppositional apologetics in general. Um, due to my life situation, I've been able to start some things and have not been able to finish it. But this is definitely something that needs to, uh, to be done. This is a gap that uh, needs to be uh, filled. The best advice that I can give you, um, the best way to use presup uh, within a homeschool context is to teach with the sensitivity towards worldview. Okay. When you teach your child science, math, history, philosophy, linguistics, language, always be sure to couch those individual topics within a particular outlook on the world that is grounded in scripture and make various application. You can teach your child that everything we do is connected to that biblical foundation so that whatever they're doing, they have one foot in the specifics of the discipline that you're teaching them and one foot in that foundation that provides the meaningful context for what they're doing. When you're able to skillfully do that as an instructor, as a teacher, you, you allow them to see the value, not only of the specific things they're learning in the area, but the value of that context, that worldview, which gives richness and meaningfulness and importance to those specific things they may be struggling with. Maybe it's mathematics or, or something like that. So I think the best way to teach presuppositionally is to teach with a sensitivity towards worldview and our commitment to the foundation of our worldview, which is, which is God, the authority of God. Okay. And so there are different ways you could apply that even without um, formal uh, curriculum, if that makes sense. Okay. Being worldview sensitive, Bible is our foundation and just teach that consistently and show how all of our different areas of learning connect with that, I think is a good way to kind of uh, engage in presuppositional sort of education. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, Augurer, I do apologize. Thank you so much. Eli shows clear evidence of the fruit of the spirit. God bless. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, definitely don't show the fruit of the spirit all the time, but, uh, uh, I'll take it. If someone says, Hey, fruit of the spirit, amen. God can use uh, a wretch like me. Hopefully, uh, people are being blessed by, uh, not only the content of the show, but how it's conducted. I do try to be very mindful, um, of how I present myself. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, George uh, says, if God knows what choices will be made and he goes on to create having made his plans. Can the person then choose otherwise than what God foreknows or does the choice get set in stone upon God effectuating the world? Here's the thing. If God decrees something to occur from before the foundation of the world, that thing will occur with certainty. Notice what I didn't say, that it will occur with necessity. There's a difference between necessity and certainty. And you get into some sticky grounds when you speak of necessity. But I think what God foreknows and what God decrees will happen with a certainty and will not not come to pass because it is impossible for that which God decrees not to come to pass, okay? So in that sense, um, um, there is a sense in which the things that God decrees is set in stone, okay? But that does not negate genuine freedom uh, of the choices that are being made. And that is just to say, philosophically, that there is a position known as compatibilism. I believe 
that meticulous sovereignty, which includes God's providence and decrees from before the foundation of the world, is consistent with a sort of freedom that is sufficient for uh, moral responsibility, and it is a genuine freedom uh, that we are able to do what we desire to do, things like that. So I do believe that they are compatible with each other, but there is a sense in which what God decrees, it is, in a sense, set in stone. It will never fail to occur. God cannot fail in his decretive purposes. Okay? Very good question. All right. Let's uh, remove that there. Do, 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 do. Someone says, I must go to sleep. <laughs> I, I suppose I must go to sleep too. Let's see. Uh, uh, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Uh, Joshua Ayala says, have you heard of Tim Mackey and his YouTube channel, The Bible Project? If so, uh, how do you view their teachings? Uh, yeah, I'm very familiar with uh, The Bible Project. Um, there are a lot of things that, um, that The Bible Project does great. Um, I actually do encourage people to take a look at some of their videos. Um, but of course, as with, with anything, um, you need to look at things with discernment. There are some sketchy things, uh, some theological uh, leanings that some of the videos promote that um, are very uh, akin to, say, uh, some of the stuff that, say, someone like N.T. Wright might hold. I see some N.T. Wright influence on some of the ways they explain things. Um, and there are some positions with respect to, um, I believe, maybe the Trinity. Um, and some other things that are a little sketchy uh, for me. So I do try to be discerning with respect to that. But overall, uh, a good resource uh, as um, a quick overview of some of the books of the Bible. But also, you need to also um, have in the one hand, um, hey, this is pretty cool. And on the other hand, discernment. Okay, so I would, I would view the Bible project uh, in a general sense, a positive way, but with an air of caution. Okay, which is the case with, with everything. All right. Uh, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Uh, okay. Okay. Do, 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 do. Okay. Isaiah the layman says, uh, what reservations do you have that creation is not a six 24 hour day? Well, I did make mention that I lean more towards that position. Uh, so I would, I would tend to be of the position that, that they are uh, six 24-hour days. I guess my reservation is just the nuance of the literary genre um, and certain old earth creationist biblical arguments. Notice that um, there are not simply the scientific arguments that old earth creationists appeal to uh, to support their position, uh, but there are various biblical arguments that they use that I think to a certain degree kind of makes sense and I can see where they're coming from. And so my reservation comes in really just being cautious and flexible uh, in terms of the possibility and plausibility of certain interpretations. And, and in that respect, I have reservations of saying, um, uh, you know, it's a 24 hour position. And if you don't hold to that, you're just a complete compromiser. I don't hold to that position. I think the debate is more nuanced and it is a worthy discussion to have uh, with respect to how we interpret Genesis. Okay. All right. Okay. So uh, there are some more uh, questions. Unfortunately, it is late for me. We are almost uh, one hour and 48 minutes in. Um, I do appreciate, uh, um, all of the questions and I do apologize if I have not been able to get to, uh, all of them. All right. But hopefully, uh, the discussion that we had here and, uh, engaging some of your questions and going over some of my own theological positions, uh, this has been a fruitful and enjoyable and even entertainment, uh, entertaining for you. Uh, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, I do 
very much greatly uh, support, I'm sorry, appreciate your support um, of, let me get this out of the way here. Um, I appreciate your support of this channel. Um, of course, if you guys weren't listening in, I'd be talking to myself. So um, it, it very much encourages me that there are folks, uh, even folks who disagree theologically um, can be in the same comments uh, and be respectful towards one another. I have to say one of the great prides that I have of this channel is that while uh, many YouTube channels that focus on apologetics and of contentious topics, uh, the comments can be pretty nasty for the most part. Um, the comments in, uh, on, on the videos on revealed apologetics for the most part, with some few exceptions, um, uh, you guys have been really respectful with one another. So I, I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, so, uh, yes, I am reading some comments here. Yes. I have not gotten to all the questions. I apologize if I didn't get to yours. I, I promise it's not on purpose. Um, I'm beginning to lose my voice and it's getting a little late. So, uh, so I hope you guys can cut me some slack. All right. Well, um, if you have a question that you want me to address, uh, next time I get onto my live stream, uh, when I have an interview or if I do another, uh, another live stream like this, uh, bring your question again and, and I'll try my best to, uh, to get to your, to your question. Um, all right. So I do apologize if I, if I missed anything that you might've posted there. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.